People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com. Remember to get your free trial of audiobooks at AudibleTrial.com slash PGTTCM. And remember to go to PGTTCM and check out our store where we've got cool shirts, stickers, mugs, whatnot. And we've also got an Amazon link where you can, uh, you know, help support the store by... Buying anything that you would normally buy on Amazon by clicking on the image of Bobby D's Sex in the Cthulhu Mythos. We'll get a little bit of money. You'll get whatever the heck it is that you wanted to get from Amazon. And again, thank you for supporting the show. Remember, you can rate, review, and subscribe us on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it. We're also on Stitcher and wherever you want to listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. This is Reading 21, H.P. Lovecraft's The Hound. We're going to be doing something a little bit special with this one. We're going to be using annotated footnotes from H.P. Lovecraft by Leslie S. Klinger. All right, let's get going. Today's episode is read by co-host Sarah Fee. Let's get going with the show. The Hound by H.P. Lovecraft. The story first appeared in Weird Tales 2, February 1924, pages 50 through 52, and 78. It was probably written, however, in September 1922. In my tortured ears there sounds unceasingly a nightmare whirring and flapping in a faint distant baying as of some gigantic hound. It is not dream, it is not, I fear, even madness, for too much has already happened to give me these merciful doubts. St. John is a mangled corpse. I alone know why, and such is my knowledge, that I am about to blow up my brains for fear I shall be mangled in the same way. Down unlit and illimitable corridors of eldritch fantasy swoops the black, shapeless nemesis that drives me to self-annihilation. Weird. Fantastic. Clark Ashton Smith. 1893-1961. Many of whose works appeared alongside Lovecraft's in Weird Tales and Elsewhere wrote a poem in 1912 entitled The Eldritch Dark. Now as the twilight's doubtful interval closes and night's accomplished certainty, a wizard wind goes crying eerily and on the wooled misshapen shadows crawl, miming the trees whose voices climb and fall, imploring its sabbatic ecstasy, the sky where vapor-mounted phantoms flee. From all the scathed moon independent over all, twin veils of covering cloud and silence thrown across the movement of the sound of things. Make blank the night till the broken west. The moon's ensanguated blade elsewhere is shown. The night grows while whole again. The shadows rest, gather beneath a greater shadow's wings. May heaven forgive the folly and morbidity which led us both to so monstrous a fate, wearied with the commonplace of a prosaic world where even the joys of romance and adventure soon grew stale. St. John and I had followed enthusiastically every aesthetic and intellectual movement which promised respite from our devastating ennui. The enigmas of the symbologists... The fin de siècle, French poet Charles Baudelaire, uh, Stephen Marmer, Paul Verlaine, and Arthur Rimbaud, whose emotional, uh, intuitive structures, and especially in the case of uh, 
Verlaine, classical form of musically changed the course of the 19th century letters. The group is frequently also said to have included uh, Paul Valeray. A late 19th century artistic movement that grew out of symbolism and included Baudelaire, who was viewed as the leading symbolist movement, uh, Theophile uh, Gautier, uh, Joris Carl Heismans, and in England, Oscar Wilde, Labas, the damned er, 1891, a best-selling novel by uh, Heismans, which treated, among other subjects, Satanism, which was seen as the Bible of the movement. The Heismans novel, uh, uh, Rabours Against Nature, uh, 1884, still widely read today, features an anti-hero based both on Heismans himself and Robert de Montague, the French dandy who also served as the inspiration for Baron de Charles in Marcel Proust's uh, La Recherie du Temps Perdu, 1871-1922. And the uh, ecstasies of the Pre-Raphaelites. English poets, painters, and critics of late 19th century who styled themselves at first secretly the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood and largely rejected the academic styles then prevalent, embracing the influence of late medieval and early Renaissance European art before the time of Raphael, uh, 1484-1520. Their works are characterized by noble subject matter and luminous bright palette achieved by the use of tempera paint. The most prominent member was Dante uh, Gabriel uh, Rossetti. Others included William Holman Hunt, John Everett Malice, William Michael Rossetti, James Collinson, Frederick George Stevens, and Thomas Woolner. All were ours in their time, but each new mood was drained too soon of its diverting novelty and appeal. Only the somber philosophy of the decadence could hold us, and this we found potent only by increasing gradually the depth and diabolism of our penetration. Baudelaire and Heisman were soon exhausted of thrills till finally there remained for us only the more discreet stimuli of unnatural personal experiences and adventures. It was this frightful emotional need which led us eventually to that detestable course which even in my present fear I mention with shame and timidity that hideous extremity of human outrage, the abhorrent practice of grave robbing. Grave robbing certainly did not begin as thrill-seeking. Rather, it was conducted for profit. See Herbert West's reanimator. I cannot reveal the details of our shocking expeditions, or catalog even partly the worst of the trophies adorning the nameless museum we prepared in the great stone house where we jointly dwelt, alone and servantless. Our museum was a blasphemous, unthinkable place, where, with the sat satanic taste of neurotic virtuosi, we had assembled a universe of terror and decay to excite our jaded sensibilities. It was a secret room, far, far underground, where huge winged demons carved a basalt and onyx 
vomited from wide grinning mouths, weird green and orange light, and hidden pneumatic pipes ruffled into kaleidoscopic dances of death the lines of red charnel things hand in hand woven in voluminous black hangings through these pipes came at will the odors our moods most craved sometimes the scent of pale funeral lilies sometimes the narcotic incense of imagined eastern shrines of the king kingly dead and sometimes how I shudder to recall it, that frightful soul-upheaving stenches of the uncovered grave. Around the walls of this repellent chamber were cases of antique mummies alternating with comely lifelike bodies, perfectly stuffed and cured by the taxidermist's art, and with headstones snatched from the oldest churchyards of the world. Niches here and there contained skulls of all shapes and heads preserved in various stages of dissolution. There, there one might find the rotting bald pates of famous noblemen and the fresh and radiantly golden heads of new-buried children. Statues and paintings there were, all of fiendish subjects and some executed by St. John and myself. A locked portfolio bound in tanned human skin, held certain knowledge and unnameable drawings, which it was rumored Goya had perpetrated, but dared not acknowledge. Francisco José de Goya y Lucientes, 1746-1828. He was considered the most important and influential artist of the late 18th and early 19th centuries, and whose work made the transition from classical to modern. Towards the end of his life, isolated and lacking royal commission, Goya conceived the black paintings, 14 works of fresco done on the walls of his country home, which depicted dark and supernatural themes. The drawings mentioned here might be sketches of those paintings. According to S.T. Joshi in I Am Province 433, the original transcript described the skin-bound portfolio as containing the unknown and unnameable drawings of Clark Ashton Smith. There were nauseous musical instruments, stringed brass and woodwind, on which St. John and I sometimes produced dissonances of exquisite morbidity and cacodemonical ghastliness, while in a multitude of inlaid ebony cabinets reposed the most incredible and unimaginable variety of tomb loot ever assembled by human madness and perversity. It is of this loot in particular that I may not speak. Thank God I had the courage to destroy it long before I thought of destroying myself. The predatory Excursions on which we collected our unmentionable treasures were always artistically memorable events. We were no vulgar ghouls, but worked only under certain conditions of mood, landscape, environment, weather, season, and moonlight. These pastimes were to us the most exquisite form of aesthetic expression, and we gave their detail a fastidious technical care, an inappropriate hour, a jarring light effect, or a clumsy manipulation of the damp sod would almost totally destroy for us that ecstatic titillation which followed the exhumations of some ominous grinning secret of the earth. Our quest for novel scenes and piquant conditions was feverish and insatiate. 
St. John was always the leader, and he it was who led the way at last to that mocking, that accursed spot which brought us our hideous and inevitable doom. By what maligned fatality were we lured to that terrible Holland churchyard? I think it was the dark rumor and legendary, the tales of one buried for five centuries, who had himself been a ghoul in his time, and had stolen a potent thing from a mighty sepulchre. I can recall the scene in these final moments, the pale autumnal moon over the graves, casting long, horrible shadows, the grotesque trees drooping sullenly to meet the neglected grass, and the crumbling slabs, the vast legions of strangely colossal bats that flew against the moon, the antique ivied church pointing a huge spectral finger at the livid sky, the phosphorescent insects that danced like death fires under the yews in a distant corner, the odors of mold vegetation and less explicable things that mingled feebly with the night wind from over the swamps and seas, and worst of all, the faint, deep-toned baying of some gigantic hound which we could neither see nor definitely place. As we heard this suggestion of baying, we shuddered, remembering the tales of the peasantry, for he whom we sought had centuries before been found in this selfsame spot, torn and mangled by the claws and teeth of some unspeakable beast. Such tales have a long history in many countries. Arthur Conan Doyle's The Hound of the Baskervilles, 1902, hailed by many as the greatest mystery of the 20th century, tells the death of Hugo Baskerville, a man of ill repute who haunted a local girl for sport by the ravages of a spectral hound. Mr. Holmes, they were the footprints of a gigantic hound, echoed in the opening sentence of the narration and below. In the most famous line, that famous story, Robert H. Haw's essay, The Hounds of Hell, The Hounds of Heaven, and The Hounds of Earth, notes a number of similarities between the two tales, and there are no doubt that Lovecraft was very familiar with Doyle's masterwork. I remembered how we delved in this ghoul's grave with our spades, and how we thrilled at the picture of ourselves, the grave, the pale watching moon, the horrible shadows, the grotesque trees, the titanic bats, the antique church, the dancing death fires, the sickening odors, the gently moaning night wind, and the strange half-heard directionless baying of whose objective existence we could scarcely be sure. Then we struck a substance harder than the damp mould, and beneath a rotting oblong box, crusted with mineral deposits from the long, undisturbed ground, it was increasingly tough and thick, but so old that we finally pried it open and feasted our eyes on what it held. It was incredibly tough and thick, but so old that we finally pried it open and feasted our eyes on what it held. Much, amazingly much, was left of the object despite the lapse of five hundred years. The skeleton, though crushed in places by the jaws of the thing that had killed it, 
held together with surprising firmness, and we gloated over the clean white skull and its long, firm teeth and its eyeless sockets that once had glowed with a charnel fever like our own. In the coffin lay an amulet of curious and exotic design, which had apparently been worn around the sleeper's neck. It was the oddly conventionalized figure of a crouching winged hound, or sphinx, with a semi-canine face. The great sphinx of Egypt has the body of a lion and the head of a pharaoh. However, in Greek mythology, the sphinx has the body of a lion and the head and breasts of a woman, and the wings of an eagle. In Oedipus Tyrannus by Sophocles, the sphinx, who poses riddles to Oedipus, is referred to as dog-faced and was exquisitely carved in antique oriental fashion from a small piece of green jade. Carved jade has been part of Chinese culture for more than 6,000 years. The expression on its features was repellent in the extreme, savoring at once of death and bestiality and malevolence. Around the base was an inscription of characters which neither St. John nor I could identify, and on the bottom, like a maker's seal, was graven a grotesque and formidable skull. Immediately upon beholding this amulet, we knew that we must possess it, that this treasure alone was our logical pelf from this centuried grave. Even had its outlines been unfamiliar, we would have desired it. But as we looked more closely, we saw that it was not wholly unfamiliar. Alien it indeed was to all art and literature which the sane and balanced readers know. But we recognized it as the thing hinted at of in the forbidden Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred. Al-Hazred has been mentioned in a previous tale, See the Nameless City. But this is the first time that the Necronomicon has been referred to by name. Lovecraft wrote an outline for a history of the book only published after his death, set forth in Appendix 3 of this book, the annotated H.P. Lovecraft. In 1937, in a letter to Harry O. Fisher, he revealed that the name came to him in a dream. Late February 1937, Selected Letters, Volume 3, 418. And he understood the translation to be an image or picture of the law of the dead. However, there is great controversy over the correct translation of the Greek. Alexandre Brochard and Louis Pierre Smith Lacroix examined the compelling theories in some detail in Necronomicon a note, and offer four versions in which they claim equal merit. Eaters of the Dead, Chants of the Dead, Book of the District's Habitations, Hiding, Enclosing the Dead, and The Law of the Dead. There is also controversy over the contents of the book. Here is in other tales, for example, the statements of Randolph Carter, page 11 through 17 above. It seems to be the Book of Demonology, a scholarly work studying various supernatural entities, and indeed here, Alhazred is describing as a demonologist. Elsewhere, it seems to be a grimoire, a book providing spells and incantations to be used to summon those entities. See, for example, the case of Charles Dexter Ward, page 171, uh, 309, below. 
In the history of the Necronomicon, Alhazred is described as worshipping the entities, not studying them. The ghastly soul symbol of the corpse-eating cult of inaccessible Lang. Lang, like other lands mentioned in Lovecraft's work, is inaccessible and hence unknown. It is mentioned again in The Whisperers in Darkness and at the Mountains of Madness, where it is described as bordering the region known as the Cold Wastes. The name has its origin in the Tibetan language and is described in H.A. Jashki's A Tibetan English Dictionary, 1881, as one of the four imaginary parts of the earth, as taught to the geographers of Tibet. See Marco Frenchowski's work, The Secrets of Lang, for a further discussion. In Central Asia, all too well did we trace the sinister liniments described by the old Arab demonologist Liniments he wrote, drawn from some obscure supernatural manifestation of the souls of those who vexed and gnawed at the dead. Seizing the green jade object, we gave a last glance at the bleached and cavern-eyed face of its owner and closed up the grave as we found it. As we hastened from that abhorrent spot, the stolen amulet of Saint John in St. John's pocket, we thought we saw the bats descend in a body to the earth we had so lately rifled, as if seeking for some cursed and unholy nourishment. But the autumn moon shone weak and pale, and we could not be sure. So, too, as we sailed the next day away from Holland to our home, we thought we heard the faint distant baying of some gigantic hound in the background but the autumn wind moaned sad and wan and we could not be sure part two less than a week after our return to england strange things began to happen we lived as recluses devoid of friends alone and without servants in a few rooms of an of an ancient manor house on a bleak and unfrequented moor Again, the narrator rings the same chimes of Conan Doyle, the Hound of the Baskervilles, takes place almost wholly in Darkmoor. Avoid the moor in those hours of darkness when the powers of evil are exalted. So that our doors were seldom disturbed by the knock of a visitor. Now, however, we were troubled by what seemed to be frequent fumblings in the night, not only around the doors but around the windows also, upper as well as lower, once we fancied that a large, opaque body darkened the library window when the moon was shining against it, and another time we thought we heard a whirring or flapping sound not far off. On each occasion, investigation revealed nothing, and we began to ascribe the occurrences to imagination alone, that same curiously disturbed imagination, which still prolonged in our ears the faint, far-off baying we thought we had heard in a Holland churchyard. The jade amulet now reposed in a niche in our museum, and sometimes we burned strangely scented candles before it. We read much in Al-Hajrad Necronomicon about its properties and about the relation of ghoul souls to the objects it symbolized, and were disturbed by what we read. Then terror came. On the night of September 24th, 19th, I heard a knock at my chamber door. Fancying it St. John, I bade the knocker enter, but was answered only by a shrill laugh. There was no one in the corridor. When I aroused St. John from his sleep, 
He professed entire ignorance of the event and became as worried as I. It was that night that the faint distant bang over the moor became to us a certain and dreaded reality. Four days later, whilst we were both in the hidden museum, there came a low, cautious scratching at the single door which led to the secret library staircase. Our alarm was now divided, for besides our fear of the unknown, we had always entertained a dread that our grisly collection might be discovered. Extinguishing all lights, we proceeded to the door and threw it suddenly open, whereupon we felt an unaccountable rush of air and heard as if receding far away a queer combination of rustling, tittering, and articulate chatter. Whether we were mad, dreaming, or in our senses, we did not try to determine. We only realized with the blackest of apprehension that the apparently disembodied chatter was beyond a doubt in the Dutch language. After that, we lived in growing horror and fascination. Mostly we held to the theory that we were jointly going mad from our life of unnatural excitements, but sometimes it pleased us more to dramatize ourselves as the victims of some creeping and appalling doom. Bizarre manifestations were now too frequent to count. Our lonely house was seemingly, seemingly alive with the presence of some malign being whose nature we could not guess. And every night that demonic baying rolled over the windswept moor, always louder and louder. On October 29th, we found in the soft earth underneath the library window a series of footprints utterly impossible to describe. They were as baffling as the hordes of great bats which haunted the house, the old manor house, in unprecedented and increasing numbers. The horror reached a culmination on November 18th, when St. John, walking home after dark from the distant railway station, was seized by some frightful carnivorous thing and torn to ribbons. His screams had reached the house, and I had hastened to the terrible scene in time to hear a whir of wings and see a vague, black, cloudy thing silhouetted against the rising moon. My friend was dying when I spoke to him, and he could not answer coherently. All he could do was to whisper, The amulet! That damned thing! Ambrose Spears's story, 1893, The Damned Thing, about an object of a color outside the spectrum of human vision, and by extension, things that humans cannot expect to understand. Lovecraft owned several collections of Bierce's work. One included this tale. Then he collapsed, an inert mass of mangled flesh. Oh, who killed St. John? The same being as the skeleton in the grave? A winged hound in England? The ambiguities of the tale are explored, complete with a table with 15 different alternatives in Who Killed St. John by Peter F. Jeffrey. I buried him the next midnight in one of our neglected gardens and mumbled over his body one of the devilish rituals he had loved in life. And as I pronounced the last demonic sentence, I heard afar on the moor the faint baying of some gigantic hound. The moon was up, but I dared not look at it, and when I saw on the dim litten moor a wide nebulous shadow sweeping from mound to mound, I shut my eyes and threw myself face down upon the ground. When I arose trembling, I know not how much later, I staggered into the house and made shocking obeisance before the enshrined amulet of green jade. 
being now afraid to live alone in the ancient house on the moor i departed on the following day for london taking with me the amulet after destroying by fire and burial the rest of the impious collection in the museum but after three nights i heard the bang again and before a week was over felt strange eyes upon me wherever whenever I, it was dark one evening as i strolled on victoria embankment for some needed air i saw a black shape obscure one of the reflections of the lamps in the water a wind stronger than the night wind rushed by and i knew what had befallen st john's must soon befall me the next day i carefully wrapped the green jade amulet and sailed for holland what mercy i might gain by returning the thing to its silent sleeping owner i knew not but i felt that i must at least try and step conceivably logical what the hound was and why it pursued me were questions still vague but i had first heard the bang and that ancient churchyard and and every subsequent event including st john's dying whisper had served to connect the curse with the stealing of the amulet accordingly i sank into the nethermost abyss of despair when at an inn in rotterdam i discovered that thieves had despoiled me of this sole means of salvation the baying was loud that evening and in the morning i read of a nameless deed in the vilest quarter of the city the rabble were in terror for upon an evil tenement had fallen a red death a phrase perhaps borrowed from edgar allan poe's 1845 story the mask of the red death in which death is inexplorably brought about by plague beyond the foulest previous crime of the neighborhood in a squalid thieves den an entire family had been torn to shred shreds by an unknown thing which left no trace and those around had heard all night above the usual clamor of drunken voices a faint deep baying insistent note as of a gigantic hound so at last i stood again in that unwholesome churchyard where pale winter moon cast hideous shadows and leafless trees drooped sullenly to meet the withered frosty ground and cracking slabs and the ivy church pointed a jeering finger at the unfriendly sky and the night wind howled manically from over the frozen swamps and frigid seas the baying was very faint now and it ceased altogether as i approached the ancient grave i had once violated and frightened away an abnormally large brood of bats which i which had been hovering curiously around it I know not why I went thither unless to pray, or gibber out insane pleas and apologies to the calm white thing that lay within, but whatever my reason, I attacked the half-frozen sod with a desperation partly mine and partly that of the dominating will outside myself. Excavation was much easier than I expected, though at one point I encountered a queer interruption, when a lean vulture darted down out of the cold sky and pecked frantically at the grave earth until i killed him with a blow of my spade finally i reached the rotting oblong box and removed the damp nitrous cover this is the last rational act i ever performed for crouched within that centuried coffin embraced by a close-packed nightmare retinue of huge sinewy sleeping bats was the bony thing my friend and I had robbed, 
not clean and placid as we had seen it then, but covered with caked blood and shreds of alien flesh and hair and leering silently at me with phosphorescent sockets and sharp and sanguined fangs, yawning twistedly and mockingly in my inevitable doom. And when it gave from those grinning jaws a deep sardonic bay, as of some gigantic hound, I saw that it held in its gory, filthy claw the lost and faithful amulet of green jade. I merely screamed and ran away idiotically, my screams soon dissolving into peals of hysterical laughter. Madness rides the star wind, claws and teeth sharpened on centuries of corpses, dripping death astride a bacchanal of bats from night black ruins of buried temples of Belial. Generally a synonym for Satan, Belial is referred to in 2 Corinthians 6.15 King's James volume. And what concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Now, as the baying of that dead, fleshless monstrosity grows louder and louder, and the stealthy whirring and flapping of those accursed webbed wings circles closer and closer, I shall seek with my revolver the oblivion which is my only refuge from the unnamed and unnameable. H.P. Lovecraft's The Hound H.P. Lovecraft's The Hound, written by H.P. Lovecraft, annotations by Leslie S. Klinger, performed by Sarah Fee, and annotations read by Daniel Spitzer. This has been People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, your fourth favorite Cthulhu Mythos podcast. Thank you for listening, and remember, you can check out the show at pgttcm.com, Check out the RSS feed and past episodes at pgttcm.podbean.com. You can always check us out at iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. And remember to stay squiggly and keep it weird. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Edited and produced by D.B. Spitzer. Anything else? But is asleep.